Richard Plowd, or Plowd, I don't know how to pronounce this last, Plowd, 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 I don't know, it's, it's, he's French, uh, but he had a bad week this week. His week was much worse than me, this American know-nothing, uh, not being able to pronounce his last name. You see, uh, Richard, we'll call him Richard, uh, has spent the last eight years building a model of the Eiffel Tower out of matchsticks, and all in an effort to uh, build this model and pass the Guinness World Record for uh, a model of the Eiffel Tower in matchsticks. I didn't know there was such a Guinness World Record, but there is. He is his tower reached 23.6 feet high, uh, some two feet higher than the previous record holder. But recently, the good folks at the Guinness World Records came to validate his tower, and they gave him the bad news. The matchsticks that he had used were not qualifying for the record. He had used inappro- uh, uh, matchsticks that were not sufficient for the task. Namely, he had gotten special matchsticks from a matchsticks uh, manufacturer, and the rule was that you had to build it with commercial matchsticks, thus disqualifying him. Eight years down the tubes, the expectations of thinking this is going to be your crowning moment where this great endeavor that you have undertaken actually is proven to be for naught. Expectations are a funny thing. They are easily built up and devastatingly shattered. It would not be hard for many of us in this room to call to mind times in which we had expectations for a particular event, expectations for a particular way we hoped that our life would go or a certain uh, 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 part of our life would go, and then found that those expectations were dashed. Expectations are a funny thing. No matter what your expectations might be of God, no matter what your expectations might be of Jesus, Our passage this morning does a funny way of, in some senses, reaffirming expectations that we would have of Jesus, and yet in another sense, dramatically altering them and forcing us to re-examine what our expectations are of Jesus. You see, there's three dramatically different events that are going to be unfolding in the passage that I'm about to read. There's Jesus' triumphal entry, there's Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, and there's Jesus cleansing the temple of false worship or, or, or of people profiteering over the worship of God's people. And in all of these events, Jesus reorients expectations about Him. See, the context of where we are in Luke's gospel is ever since Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus has been on a... Uh, Um, methodical journey to Jerusalem. He's been traveling the countrysides, traveling through towns and villages, teaching and showing his audiences what it means to truly be a follower of his. And now we are at the point, the precipice, where he is just about to enter into Jerusalem. He's a week away from his own crucifixion, and everything starts to come into focus. Essentially, what we're going to see between now and Jesus' cross is an all-out battle for the hearts of the people, between Jesus and those who would oppose Him. 
between Jesus and those who would have false expectations for him. And this is ultimately a battle for our hearts as well. See, you will either treasure Jesus and the salvation he brings, or you will trifle with Jesus while destruction awaits. What I'm going to argue for you from this passage is that you may have confidence that Jesus is the promised king and that you may have the peace that he brings. You may have confidence that Jesus is the promised king and you may have peace that only he brings. Follow along as I read from Luke chapter 19, verse 28 to 48. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And tear you down on to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. May God write the truths of his word upon our hearts this morning. Three different events that serve to alter our expectations for Jesus, serve to highlight false expectations of Jesus. First, in the triumphal entry, we see that Jesus' presence is cherished by those who desire him. Jesus' presence is cherished by those who desire him. As he's entering Jerusalem, as he's drawing near, the Mount of Olives that is referenced is barely a mile outside of the city. There are two small villages, Bethany and Bethphage. And if you were to uh, visit Jerusalem, if you were to visit the outskirts of, of, of Jerusalem, you, the, the Mount of Olives is this large hilly area, this large hill, this large kind of mountain that is uh, just outside the city, and there's this big valley that goes through. And then you can look out and you can kind of see a, a large a panorama of the city from the mountain. So you can look out and see much of it. So it's understandable Jesus is starting to enter and the city is just lying before him. 
But anyway, do you remember previous times in Luke or other Gospels where Jesus would do a miracle and then he'd do this strange thing where, where he would tell those who saw the miracle, he'd say, do not go tell anyone about this. Keep it to yourselves. Remember that. And why would he do that? He would do that because he did not want those who were gathered to begin to make a big fuss of him before his appointed time had come, before he had completed the work, the ministry that his father had sent him to do. And so now Jesus is drawing near, and no longer are there any of these conditions, don't go tell anyone. Everything is laid bare, the story is made known, there's no hiding it. And Jesus is the one revealing it about himself. You see, you see in this triumphal entry of Jesus, you see his power, you see his divinity on full display in three separate ways. First, you see his sovereignty in verses 29 to 34. It's an interesting story where Jesus tells a couple of his disciples, hey, go get a colt or a, a young donkey. Go get this young donkey at this place I'm going to tell you. If somebody asks you why you're taking the donkey, you shall say the Lord has need of it. And so then it's, it's, it's this, this strange event where he tells them, here's exactly what you are to do. And then verse 32 and 33, they, they go into the town. They, they find it just as he had told them, as verse 32 says. And then in verse 33, they're untying the colt. And its owner said to them, hey, this is exactly what Jesus said. Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. I think this is in one sense underscoring the sovereignty of Jesus over all things. He's sending them to find a colt, to find a donkey exactly where he knows that they will find it. And he's telling them exactly what this guy's going to say, and he's telling them exactly what you say to them. And this is emphasized not only in the instructions he gives, but then in the fulfillment of those instructions as they come to realization. And so the sovereignty of Jesus, the, 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 the reigning Lord, the one who knows all things, is omniscient of all, over all things, is revealed. And even this strange encounter of him telling his disciples to go get him a colt to ride in on. But also, it's revealed not only in his sovereignty, but in how he fulfills Old Testament prophecy regarding the coming of the Messiah. He rides into town. In verse 35, they brought it to Jesus. They, they throw their cloaks uh, on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And as he rides along, they even spread their cloaks on the road. And so you imagine Jesus like sitting on this small donkey, riding near, drawing near, going down the Mount of Olives. And the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now this seems interesting. But what this is echoing is a prophecy from the Old Testament book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 9, People of Israel are promised that a Messiah would come, and this Messiah would be this strange combination of this great power, this king who would rescue his people, yet he would arrive in absolute total humility, in service to his people, in service for his people, on a mission to redeem his people. This is the king whom you have anticipated. And this is what, as he arrives fulfilling this prophecy, from Zechariah chapter 9. You can make reference to it and go look at it later. Zechariah 9, chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. And yet you see this interesting picture of the arrival of King Jesus, the Messiah, in a very humble way. Because if you think about it, great arrivals are not marked by such humility. 
Tonight, when the Super Bowl begins, the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers are going to enter the stadium with loud music playing, with, 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 with great pomp and circumstance. I'm not going to enter riding humble donkeys. Think about it. If the president were to come visit Situate, you'd have a motorcade some 30, 40, 50 vehicles long. You'd have entire parts of town closed. You would have uh, airspace cordoned off. You would have all sorts of things that would, uh, that would note the arrival of this important, powerful figure. And yet you have Jesus, the Messiah, entering Jerusalem, riding a donkey. This donkey represents this humble, lowly creature. And it represents the humble, lowly nature of the one who is riding it. And look at what the people are crying out. They're crying out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, they get it. They know their Old Testaments. They're not looking at it saying, What is the story with this donkey? No, they know it. They're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. They're rejoicing in the arrival of the peace-giving king sent by God. It's interesting. When Jesus was born, a heavenly host of angels sang as he came as a baby, and now as he prepares to enter in Jerusalem, a host of people rejoice in the arrival of the Messiah. Look at this language. You have a king, the promised Messiah. The Messiah is a good, just ruler over his people. You have a promise, the proclamation of peace. You know, one thing that the Bible masterfully does is it takes what we understand as our problems, and without minimizing those problems, it actually gives greater context and helps us to inform not only our truly deepest needs, but helps us to get a greater understanding of our hearts, our lives, our situation, our place in the world, our relationship with God. And it speaks to that and informs that and helps us to come into relationship with God. Here, here's what I mean. I might not be very clear on that. Um, if you were to survey so many Christians in this room here today, you would find that many of them became Christians as they navigated a personal crisis they were kind of walking through. Maybe it was a health crisis, or maybe it was a family crisis, or maybe it was uh, a financial crisis, or maybe it was uh, just, just any kind of crisis that they were walking through that really rattled their cage, that really shook, uh, shook them uh, and, and, and unsettled them to a point where they had to seek answers, they had to seek refuge, they had to seek solace or, or, or peace somewhere where they could not find it in of themselves. And so here's what the Bible, here's what Jesus does, is he comes as this peace-giving king who is arriving. And the Bible reveals how, A, our hearts long for peace, our hearts long for rescue, our hearts long for salvation, whatever circumstances have us uh, uh, realizing that the answers are not within ourselves. 
And the Bible shows us Jesus Christ, who is the one who is able to speak to those fears, who is able to speak to that crisis, who is able to speak to that unsettling that we have experienced, and he is able to give rescue and relief. Not necessarily immediately eliminating the trial that brought you to him, but showing you that he is greater than the trial, that he is the refuge in the midst of the storm of the trial, that you can trust him, that you can rely upon him, that you can hope in him and cling to him for literally all of eternity. And that he is God in the flesh who gives you himself and gives you his peace. So this is the beauty of what Christ has done. Is he comes that he might be our peace. That he entered the storm of this world. He entered the storm of what he would endure in Jerusalem. All the way to the cross. That he might minister to you and come to you in the storm of whatever you are enduring. See, so often we look at Jesus and we think, yeah, okay, Jesus, it'd be great if you would solve this problem for me. But what Jesus shows us is that he is both the gift and the gift giver. He is both the blessing and the blesser. He is our peace and he is the giver of that peace. So perhaps the peace you have been looking for him to give you, you haven't found it yet because you haven't realized that he himself is that peace through knowing Him and through coming to Him and trusting Him by faith, through repenting of your sin and believing in Him. So where your heart has been at war, He brings peace through reconciling you to God. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This, this term glory, it's a term I use frequently. I love it, but we need to define it. It's, it's, it's glory is this awareness of the heavens, the, the, the heaviness, the majesty of this one who is revealed. You don't make light of glory. Glory is something that, 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 that transcends upon the people of God. They're moved by the, the majesty of the one that they worship. They're moved by the sight of Jesus who has come into their presence. And when they've encountered this glory, they cannot ever be the same again. And so what you see here, they're saying peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And this is Jesus whose presence is cherished by those who desire Him. And it's a stunning picture, yet again, of God in the flesh receiving the absolute un filtered praise that the Old Testament has anticipated he would receive. Both Zechariah chapter 9, there's allusions here to Psalm 118 and the people of God praising the arrival of their king. And yet, for the glory and the majesty that is spoken of for the, by these people in a reference to the arrival of Jesus, he is arriving on a donkey. And here's some of that imagery. Here's what some of this is getting at. This is this strange expectation-shattering picture of Jesus being the only figure. The Christian God, our God, 
pursuing us in our sin and our rebellion against Him. The offended pursuing the offender in humility and with a direct pursuit of reconciliation and in a conquering of the greatest problem that plagues you and I, that being our own sin and our rebellion against God. He comes in humility as he enters Jerusalem because he knows the climax of his ministry in Jerusalem is going to be the humiliating death that he will endure on the cross. The baby that was born in a humble manger to a humble, poor teenage woman entered the town on a humble donkey and he would die a humble death on the cross. God's way of redeeming his people is in pursuing them through the humility of Jesus Christ. In what other world, in what other worldview, in what other circumstance does it make even the, the, the most possible of sense that the offender would pursue the offending? You get what I'm saying. God who has been wronged by us in our sin, would pursue reconciliation with us by dying. This is the wonder of what we see in his triumphal entry. Now we see that some of the Pharisees in the crowd in verse 39 said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is some of the picture of, okay, the mask is taken off, the, the veiling of identity is, re, is removed, and Jesus Christ himself says, no, I am worthy of all praise. And let me tell you, if you try to silence these people, even the stones will cry out. God over all things has entered into his world. And he will receive the praise of his people and all of creation as well. So Jesus' presence is cherished by those who desire Him. But secondly, Jesus' protection is lost by those who reject Him. Follow along in verse 41. And when He drew near and saw the city, He wept over it. Now pause here. This is kind of strange. Conquering arriving king sees the city, and what does He do? He weeps. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day, the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is anticipating here, He's foretelling a destruction that would be promised to come on Jerusalem some 40 years later for her rebellion, her hard-heartedness against her God. Where the people of the city of God had the Word of God, but they denied the God who had given them the Word. And they would be destroyed in their pride and in their rejection of God and in their boastful sense of their own self-sufficiency. I'm going to emphasize in what we see mainly in verse 41. 
We're not going to get into very much of what we see in verses 42 to 44, because that's all significantly laid out in much greater detail in Luke 21. So come back in two weeks when Neil is going to preach that. Yeah, get ready, Neil. It's going to be a good one. Um, The king arrives on a humble donkey. The king draws near, and he sees the city and weeps over it. Jesus continually reorients, reshapes our expectations of him. He finds a city, Jerusalem, that is guilty in all of her sin. And the sinfulness of the city, will it not become uh, uh, just just uh, undoubtedly, 100% confirmed, will it not become un... uh, 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 I don't know, I'm I'm losing my train of thought on words. Uh, Absolutely certain, in less than a week, when Jesus, God in the flesh, is crucified in this city. Yeah, that was a city that had rebelled against God. General rule of thumb, places where God is killed by the people are places that are in rebellion against God. Jesus knows this. He knows the long line of the history of Jerusalem, the history of His own people, how God had continually blessed and rescued and showed love and mercy uh, to His people, while His people went through cycles of faithfulness and rebellion, of trust and pushing Him away, And is this not a fitting illustration of the spiritual climate of our day? We have Christians here and there, but certainly not many places. Some of you really only interact with other Christians when you are here on Sunday mornings. You have no other Christians in your life. You don't have regular interactions with other Christians otherwise in your home or in your office or uh, uh, in your neighborhood, wherever the case may be. This event that Jesus would foretell was when in A.D. 70, when Emperor Vespasian would attack and destroy Jerusalem, raising the city, pillaging it, burning it. And yet there's a principle here of the God who redeems His people, the God who judges His people, is the same God who weeps over His people. This is a mystery of God's sovereignty. He makes rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. But perhaps you're not quite sure about Christianity. And you're not quite sure about Jesus even. But there is one thing that I can say that you probably are sure about, or that we could agree that you might be sure about, and that's as you look around our day and our age, you agree that this world is seemingly spiraling out of control. I, I haven't seen the latest poll numbers, but every, I don't know, every few years I see, you, you see like an opinion poll that comes out that basically says like asking people, are you more confident or least, less confident about the direction of the nation, about the direction of the world, all, all these things. And it's always people are less confident, less confident. Like, like, like there, there's not growing optimism about the state of our world. And if that's the boat that you are in, Where you look around at your world and you say, yeah, this thing is spiraling out of control. Then I encourage you to look to Jesus 
the one who weeps over Jerusalem. Look to Jesus, the one who enters into a city that is spiraling out of control. Look to Jesus, the one who, who enters into a world of brokenness and brings healing. Look to Jesus, who enters into a world of destruction and violence and brings peace. Look to Jesus, who enters into hearts that are unsettled and are broken and are, and are, and are devastated in their own sin against God. And look to Him and find life. Maybe your own personal world, your own family, your own home, your own circumstances feel as if they have been wildly out of step. One thing we see is Jesus is the one who is weep, weeping over Jerusalem, is Jesus is the one who is able to handle your weeping. Jesus is the one who is able to wipe the tears from your eyes. Jesus is the one who is able to hear your cries. Jesus is the one who is able to sympathize with you as your great high priest. Jesus is the one who is able to understand the cries of your heart that even those who are closest around you relationally cannot fully understand. Jesus is the one who is able to meet you where you are and to make you his and to give you his peace. This is the king that the Old Testament has told us about and the king that the Old Testament has promised as we've seen him journey all of the way to this point. And so Jesus' presence is cherished by those who desire him. His protection is lost by those who reject him. And his purpose is to guard and spread the glory of his name. Look on. Jerusalem has rejected him. Now he enters in and he goes right to the temple in verse 45. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He goes and cleans house. He doesn't go to the marketplace first. He doesn't go to visit friends first. He goes right to the temple where the people are supposedly supposed to be worshiping God. And yet there's a problem. It's Passover time. Jerusalem had a population of roughly around 80,000 people in Jesus' day, but that would balloon in the week of Passover. It would balloon to upwards of 200, maybe even 250,000 people. So the city would grow in size by as much as 150 to 200 percent for that week as travelers, as pilgrims would come to come and make sacrifices at the temple, to come and make uh, 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 offerings in a manner of which trying to make themselves right with God through their sacrifices. But the authorities at the temple, the religious leaders who in one sense had the responsibility of faithfully handling and preaching and shepherding the people with the Word of God. In another sense, they decided that it'd be easy to say, hey, all these pilgrims are coming to town to make sacrifices. You know, if we start providing the sacrifices and mark the prices up, we can make a pretty good nest egg here as well. So they started raising prices. They started charging people exorbitant sums to come and worship God. And believe it or not, when God in the flesh enters into a place where his name is being blasphemed for the financial gain of those who would, who would uh, profit off of his name, he gets a little upset. He enters the temple, he begins to drive them out, saying, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Den of robbers, this is where, this is where crooks hang out. Low life, scoundrels. 
kind of place a good, respectable person does not, is not seen. He says, this is who you are, this is what you have made it into. Make no mistake, our Lord Jesus repudiates in the harshest possible terms those who would profit off of his name in a manner that takes advantage of his people. Saw this as a spark of the Protestant Reformation where Martin Luther saw John Tetzel going around, traveling around, telling poor peasant people to drop money into this basket and knowing that when a, when a coin in the basket rings, a soul from purgatory springs, offering to free their loved ones from purgatory if they would give to the cause of building the Roman Catholic Church up. And Luther was so disgusted by it. Started the fires of the Protestant Reformation. And we see this in our day and age as well. When people try to profit off Jesus as a self-help guru, as a miracle healer, as a, a, a one who will promise to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Our Lord Jesus is disgusted by them, making it a den of robbers. And so what does he do in verse 47? He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people, they were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. It's an interesting picture of discipleship here. When Jesus' triumphal entry happens, what do the people do? They don't have much they can offer him, but they can lay their cloaks on the donkey. They can lay their cloaks uh, along his path so that he has smooth entry. They give what they can give of themselves for the sake of, the, of, of serving the king who is arriving. And here, what are they doing? They're hanging on his words. That's a good picture of discipleship, of what it means to follow Jesus. To serve him with what we have, with the skills, with the intellect, with the talents we've been given, no matter how few in number they may be, and to hang on to his words, to listen to him, to be like Peter in uh, John's gospel whenever Jesus said something that was really controversial or really hard for the crowds to follow. And right after he had fed the 5,000 and, and people started to walk away because then he had told them, no, you must trust in me. You must feast on me in order to live. And everybody leaves and he says, what about you guys? Are you leaving? And Peter says to him, Lord, you have the words of life. Where else could we go? People were hanging on his words. But you know what's really fascinating? In verse 47, it says the chief priests, scribes, principal men of the people, the ones who were making money off of the name of God in the temple until he arrived, they were what? They were seeking to destroy him. And they would ultimately prove temporarily successful. Just a few days later, they would rally the people against him where he would be destroyed on a cross between two criminals. But in the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God and in the work of God in redeeming His people, the destruction of the king is actually the, actually the victory of the king over his enemies. Because he would be destroyed for your sins and for mine as the final sacrifice that the Old Testament had, had anticipated. Perhaps these guys should have read their Old Testaments a little more and not read how to make money at the temple. 
they would have seen that the Lamb of God was coming to take away the sins of the world. They would have seen that this one, this promised Messiah, would rescue his people from their sins. They would see that his suffering, that his crucifixion, that his death would prove to be the life-giving rescue for all who would look upon him in faith. This is the upside-down, expectation-shattering nature of Jesus Christ and his work and of his kingdom. You will either treasure Jesus and the salvation he brings, or you will trifle with Jesus while destruction awaits. Jesus is our promised king. Let us receive the peace that he brings.